Well, hello, Element. It is great to see you, or you see me, however that works. Uh, time change, if you're watching this on Sunday morning, you may have like tuned in and been like, oh my goodness, they started early. No, you got up late because the time changed last night. I hope this week is going to treat you well with that, but you can always go back and restart the live stream or wait till the next one, but hello, time change was yesterday. So great, so great. When you lose an hour, it is never the fun thing to have happen. Uh, One thing, as we said in the announcement video, I just wanted to hit again, is next week we are doing a soft opening of sorts. Plan to do a full reopening on Easter, but a soft one over the next couple weeks. And that's because it might be something that just kind of goes haywire, but that's okay. We're going to work out the kinks. What we need from you is a lot of grace. If you are watching the live stream next week, the sound may be a little bit different Uh, So just give us some grace in that as well as we try to work out those kinks. Again, that's why we're calling it our soft opening. Uh, We're also going to be having full children's programs at the 9.30 and 11 o'clock service, but they are uh, lessened in size. So we're going to be doing sign-ups the Friday before because I know a lot of people get really excited after a Sunday. Like, I'm going to sign up for next week. And then next Sunday morning, you wake up and you're like, yeah, I don't feel so good. I'm not going to go. So we're going to do the sign-ups on the Friday before. Uh, This week, there'll be some videos that come out that show you how to go go online and sign up and walk through all those processes. So just keep that in mind, which means you could also subscribe to our newsletter, our weekly update we put out every week, because we'll have links to that in there as well. Uh, we want you know this to go smoothly, but you know the nature of how it works and looking especially at Job's life and Lent, nothing ever goes as smoothly as we want it to go, so that's just how it works. Uh, now don't forget, middle of the message, I'm going to put up a slide. The slide's going to have a question on it. And during that question, you can pause the live stream, take care of your kids, get some coffee, but hopefully take a second to answer that question as we walk through. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on more and then events and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smart device if you're in our local area. If not, type in the zip code 93455. will come up that way. And what you will get is you'll get the announcements. And what you also get is a link to a PDF version of our Lent journey guide, because we're not going to put the full notes in there because we want everybody going through this journey guide together. Uh, We want to be people walking in rhythm together as we go through this, so everybody needs to kind of get one of those. Uh, If if you're not in a local area and you would like one and don't have one, send an email to connectourelement.org and we will get one to you. Uh, If you're in a local area, just swing by this week and grab one. We want to get one in everybody's hands. So, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. If you're so inclined, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And this is Job 11, verses 5 and 6, spoken by Job's friend Zophar. And this is what he says, But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. He's such a great friend. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, today we ask that you would take us and teach us what it means to truly understand who you are and the grace that you've called us to in our lives. That we'd be those who walk forward in a better understanding than many times what we have had so far. That we come in understanding of your grace and your goodness as you have spoken over us such words of kindness and hope. And that we would see you as you are, even in the midst of trials and suffering and this Lent-type journey. Amen. 
Amen. So we are in week five out of eight weeks of a look through the book of Job. The book of Job is 42 chapters, and normally 42 chapters would take element a year and a half to get through, but we're just doing it, condensing it down to eight. Now, this series is a focused journey that we have been doing, uh, looking at suffering, God, growth, trust, our reaction to that. And we did this because after a year of COVID, we've been separated a lot. And we want to be able to have everybody walking in the same rhythm together, looking at the same things, reading the same things together. And we're actually referring this to our Lent-like journey. Not that Element normally celebrates Lent, but we are doing it this year to give something up, to remind ourselves who God is as we walk through this together, as God allows these ideas of Job to steep in us like good tea. I don't know if you know how tea works, but you put a tea bag in water, and the longer it sits in the water, the stronger the flavor comes out. Out. And so this is what we want to do with the book of Job. Not that I personally can have tea right now because I like chai tea. It's got a lot of sugar in it, so I don't get to have it. Wah, wah, poor me. But anyway, uh, the book of Job starts off by telling us that Job was blameless and upright, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. That's Job 1.1. Now, we read this in America, and we think, well, good things must happen to Job because he's such a good guy, and he does all the right things. Like, again, that's how Christian theology tends to work in America. That's what Bildad, the guy who spoke spoke last week to Job actually said. And when things go wrong, we wonder where God is. Is he not doing what he's supposed to do? Maybe God's not as good as he is. See, Job's life goes from what we perceive as good. He has health, wealth, children, everything's to be moving, things to be moving forward. But then he goes to horrific bad where he loses his health and his wealth and his children. And yet, even in the midst of that, Job was still, so, Job was still someone who worshiped God and praised God for who God is. The whole scenario, though, comes about as it centers around this character called the accuser that actually translates as Satan in the Bible. And the accuser's hope is that Job would curse God, show that he didn't really trust God. And this doesn't mean it's a power struggle between God and the devil because nothing can stand up to God. This is a way for God to allow certain things to take place because God wants to grow Job's faith and he wants to grow Job's friend's faith and his wife's faith and eventually our faith as well, trusting him for everything. And really the question comes down to in the book of Job is what do our hearts hold most dear? That's the question. Now, Job's wife is someone who didn't really trust God. Her advice to Job in the midst of suffering was, curse God and die. And if that's how you respond to suffering, please don't ever volunteer for a crisis hotline. You may not be the best counselor on the other end. But when anyone, including Christians, don't have a proper view of who God is and how he works and what he does, we tend to ask questions like, God, why did you let this happen? Rather than taking a step back and saying, God, what do you want me to learn in the midst of this as you walk with me through these things? Now, the result that the accuser is trying to get from Job is he wants Job discredited as a fraud. But in the end, what God will do, as I said, will grow Job's faith. This is what we're looking at over these eight weeks. Uh, Job will have three friends that show up in the book. And when they first show up, it's a brilliant thing they do. They just come, they sit in silence. They put ash on their head, they tear their clothes just like Job, and they just sit and mourn and weep with him over the loss of his health and his wealth and his children. But after those seven days, they start 
start to speak. And the words that they speak are not as beautiful and as brilliant as they're silent. Uh, the silence. The first friend, Eliphaz, he goes the route of empty platitudes. Oh, Job, just let go and let God, or God's not going to give you more than you can handle. And none of those speak to Job where he is in that moment. The, the second friend, Bildad, goes the way of a faith teacher, telling Job, Job, you just had more faith. Well, then everything would work out and you would be healed. And that is bad theology. And it wasn't right because what happened to Job was not because of a lack of faith. Now, open your Bibles to Job chapter 11. This is where you get to the third friend named Zophar. In each of these weeks, I'm not reading you everything that all these friends say. I'm taking the overall ideas. But in doing that, I'm not really having like, here's my three points, take these and walk away. I'm, I'm just giving you the overall idea. But if you want something, the big ideas to walk away with today is, first off, uh, God calls us to be in community with one another, and sometimes that's messy. The second thing that you see is, how do we really hear? God's voice and why can't we hear God's voice? And then in the end, we'll talk about why we need God's grace now more than ever. So if you have that in your head, that's kind of be the, uh, where we go in this. Now, when Zophar shows up, Zophar to me sounds a lot like things I would say, because Zophar says, well, it could be worse, and this is still better than you deserve. Uh, this, is kind of, this is how I speak into my own life when things go really r- wrong. And when I say it's better than I deserve, I mean life and relationship with God and the restoration he brings into our lives. What Zophar means by it is that God really should have punished Job even more because Job was way less righteous than Zophar even thought. Even in his sin, what God did to him was not enough. But this is the problem many times in friendships. Friendships are messy. Friends have different views and different ideas of different things. Jesus tells us that we're supposed to go out and be fishers of men, making disciples, you know, fishers of men with one another. And I know when we think about fishermen or fishing, we have like this nostalgic view of what that's supposed to look like because we've never, most of us, have never had to gut or clean a fish. I read this story by a guy named Caleb Kaltenbach, and he wrote about fishing growing up. And he said he used to go out with his dad when he was a little kid, and they would sit on the boat, and they would talk and laugh. Every once in a while, they'd, they'd catch a fish. He said it, said it was great. And then he got a little bit older, and then when he started to catch fish when he was older, they said, well, now you're older, now you catch it, you got to clean it. And he's never cleaned a fish before. And so he said, it's hard, it was disgusting. When he was done the first time, there was blood all over the kitchen. Then he had to clean that up as well. And this really goes into how a lot of friendships come about. When Jesus calls us fishers of men, it means that friendships will be messy like that. Uh, It's not always going to be clean. It's not always going to work out exactly the way that we think. We will have different theological ideas and how we talk about things. And when we step into one another's lives, we're going to understand sacrifice is messy and talking about issues is messy and helping others is messy because real love in the end becomes messy. And Job's three friends, if I said, they really don't have the greatest theology, but they actually showed up. And what ensues in their conversations becomes very messy for all of them. But in the end, they're all going to grow by what, what God does throughout the book of Job. So when Zophar shows up, he really speaks the strongest of all the initial speeches. In chapter 11, verse 6, he says to Job, Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Now flip over to Job chapter 13. Those are strong words, right? Job, you're way worse than than God is even letting on in this. Well, in Job chapter 12 and 13, Job starts to maintain his innocence and says, I will prove it to you. If I could just stand before God, I'd make God declare me innocent. Job 13 verse 18, Job says, Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. When really, if we stand before God with all of our sin and yuck, none of us stand in the right. Flip over to Job chapter 20. As Job starts to say these things, Zophar's response in Job 20 is that he is 
is offended, that Job is offended, that he said something offensive. It, it's kind of funny. But Job 20, verses 27 to 29, Zophar then says this about wicked people, referring to Job. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. That's the, the wicked person. So he's saying this to Job. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. And Zophar's view, what you see in his theology, essentially looks like karma right? You get what you deserve, and you have to work off your own sin. You have to do it better and do it right. And this is why Christianity is diametrically opposed to karma, because we get what we don't deserve. We get salvation and grace. Zophar believes that all suffering is God's punishment on sin. Now, yes, in the Bible, in certain places, in certain times, God does bring punishment on sin by doing certain things, like catastrophes and judgment. But by, in the end of all those, you see, it's always for some greater salvation, always for some greater salvation. Noah's flood, plagues in Egypt, Sodom and Gomorrah, even the various famines were all used by God to bring salvation to a people. When Jesus comes, Jesus will say, yes, we need to be a people who repent and change. Not because God's going to bring a tornado to our house, but because Jesus knows what sin does in us. In Psalm 130, verse 3, it says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The NIV says it like this. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? And this is the idea that in the end, none of us are really innocent. In karma, it's just doom. You got to work it off and you're never going to work it off. Today, we must understand that we are a people who make decisions that hurt others. We benefit from systems that are unjust and oppressive. You ever think about where your clothes come from? Like, how can I get the best deal on that? Well, who makes those clothes? Sometimes there's places that it's very unjust and oppressive. And what it ends up being is we are not just victims of suffering. We are also perpetrators of it, even when we don't realize it. And if God kept track of all the different sins and all the ways that one sin led to another sin, to another sin, to another sin, and the complicated weave of pain and suffering in the world, there would not be any place for any of us to stand. There wouldn't be, which is why Jesus comes. And Jesus comes and gives his life to put an end to the painful cycle of sin that we are all caught up in and restore God's grace, God's peace upon the earth. A year and a half ago, we talked all through this idea of suffering and what it looked like through this series called The The Reason for God. And in the book, it really talks about how there's no greater answer to suffering in the world than the Christian answer, that God comes and walks with us through it, that we are the ones who have brought brokenness and pain into the world. But God steps in to bring redemption, and God will walk with us through those painful places. C.S. Lewis said, of all the modern objections we have to God, they're all based on our own notions of what is fair and what justice is. Because we believe that no good person, and we decide what is good, should ever have any bad thing happen to them, and we decide what the bad thing bad thing is. It's why Job's friends think that Job must have done something wrong. This has to be your fault, Job. C.S. Lewis points out that if evolutionary mechanics are all that the world is based upon, if that's all that it is and God's not involved at all, then death and violence should just be there. The strong should always eat the weak. The strong should always have power over the weak because it's just natural. Because if there is no God, then suffering and injustice isn't unfair or unjust. It's just how it is. See, the whole reason that we cry out when we see injustice and pain is that we know that there is something wrong. To have a problem with suffering is actually a bigger problem for atheists than it is for believers, because atheism just does not have a better answer than it just is. 
In a world without God, suffering is meaningless. It is totally random. And that means every child who dies from hunger, which is six million uh, a year, by the way, there'll be no justice, no making it right. In the end, if there is no God, it is just what it is and it does not matter. And this is why the book of Job is so important because the book of Job tells us that there is a purpose, that God can bring good out of everything that we go through. There is a point to all of this. See, the prevalence of suffering in our world may lead us to question what God is doing, and I have done that. But the fact that we instinctively know something is wrong, that we get angry and say this can't be right, is some of the best evidence that there is a God. And he created the world where people should flourish and children should not go hungry and where cities and nations should get along together in peace. What we learn in the scriptures, especially the book of Job, is that when people suffer, God wants us to be concerned about it. God wants us to step in. God wants us to understand that we have brought this into the world by our own decisions, but he wants us to be concerned about it as his hands and feet as we step into the world to do something about it. The writers of scripture, they don't spend a whole lot of time trying to explain evil or explain it away. What they did is they grieve over it, they get angry about it, and they go to do something about it. Uh, When the early church was founded, Acts 2, verses 44 and 45 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling the possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What they did is they alleviated needs. And in that, in that community, as I said, it became very messy. And if you went through the book of Acts with us, you saw how messy that became. Job's friends, they come and they love him during the silence and it's beautiful. But when they start to speak, that's when it just gets really messy. And you hear these platitudes and you hear this morality theology and you hear this karma theology. And Zophar will say things like, Job, if you are suffering, then you must have brought it on yourself. If you can't hear God, you moved away from him. If you repent, God will deliver you from your suffering. And today, we are a people who speak a lot like Zophar. We associate well-being with the presence of God and assume suffering means we must have done something wrong. This is why you go to a bookstore. There are no books that say, uh, where is God when it feels good? Nobody writes books like that. No one wins the lottery and cries out, God, why me? Like Nobody does that, right? But what we see is that God created a world where initially, I don't think there was pain. I don't think there was this misery. But he always had a purpose for us, and that was trusting him. And the pain that we were brought in the world, we are told that one day God is going to wipe the tears from our eyes as he brings all things to the place of redemption. And yet even now, God will use pain to try and speak to us. That does not mean that God is absent. See, when things are good, we are tempted to forget God, to not even think about him. But in hopelessness, we start to realize that we aren't running the show after all, that we are clear that we are actually not God himself. Uh, And this doesn't mean if you have friends who are suffering, you should walk up to them and say, hey, isn't this great? You're going to get really clear that you're not God now. How wonderful. Don't do that because then you're going to be like Job's friends. Pain is deeper and more mysterious than that. In pain, we realize everything meaningful in life rests upon God himself and not upon us. John Ortberg once wrote this. I don't believe God is the kind of person who delights in inflicting painful moral, little moral object lessons on helpless mortals. But in my own life, at least, there's a strange duality about pain. It can cause me to wonder where God is as nothing else can, and it can open me up to my dependence on his presence as nothing else can. So here's my question for you for the live stream today. Uh, This is right here. How has pain and tragedy caused you to wonder where God is as nothing else has? And secondly, also, how has this pain and tragedy caused you to become dependent upon him like nothing else has? I think there's good questions for us to answer because almost one thing tends to lead to another. 
Now, I know I said a lot of disparaging things about Job and his three friends, but in some ways, they're also right in some of the stuff that they said. They might have had the wrong heart motivation behind it, but they're right in some of the things that they said. Like in Job chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, Zophar tells Job that he's babbling and mocking. And that's probably true, the, the babbling part, because out of those first 31 chapters of the book of Job, Job talks for 21 of them. Job's friends will only get nine chapters combined together. And when God shows up and speaks, which we'll start next week a little bit, when God shows up and speaks, he will talk for four chapters and he he has to pause because Job interrupts him in the middle of it. Yeah, Job's a talker. He's a talker. So this is the understanding though. When Job starts talking after his friends show up, he'll start to complain about God and to God. But we also have to know that this is okay. God's okay with that when we complain and we don't understand. In the book of Psalms, the Hebrew name for the book of Psalms is this word called, it's called uh, Tehillim, and it means praises. And what you see throughout the book of Psalms, you have these different types of praises, thanksgiving praises, wisdom praises, enthronement praises. But the most common praise in the book of Psalms is what's called the Psalm of Lament or the Psalm of Complaint, the praise of complaint. Uh, Psalm 44 verses 11 and 12 says, you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. In verse 17, it says, all this has come upon us that we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Now that actually isn't true because they were never really true to the complete covenant. But anyway, they cry out to God this way and that's okay with God. Israelites devoted more Psalms, more praises to complaining than anything else. And maybe that's good news for you. Maybe that's all you know how to do. It's like your spiritual gift, complaining. Well, there you go. But talk to God about it. See, the whole point is at least they were speaking to God. Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis says these complaint prayers, these complaint praises were without parallel in the ancient world. No other religions prayed to their God in such an open and honest way because they were afraid of them. Only Israel prayed this way because only they believed that the great God who made heaven and earth actually cared about their pain. And what it did is it brought them hope. Now, depending on when Job was written, it could be the earliest book that is written in the Old Testament. And it could have actually led to this mindset for these people that in the midst of this, God's going to come even if we need to complain, even if we need to cry out, God will speak. Even if sometimes you feel like you're in the midst of silence, God can and probably is still speaking in unexpected ways. See, when Job started to believe that God had left him, he starts to complain worse and worse. And this is where he gets to the point where he says, I want to stand before God. I want to declare my case. And I want to make God have to come and tell me why I'm innocent. In Job 23, verses 3 through 5, Job says, Oh, then I knew where I might find him, and I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what, his, what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Basically, this is God needs to explain himself to me. And you got to be careful what you ask for because God does show up. And again, we'll see that next week. But Job gets to a place Instead of just complaining, he stops asking, you know, God, what do you want me to learn? And just starts to think that God is not as good as God said he is. And it's important to see that when Zophar's words, when he starts to speak, not all of his words are necessarily wrong. Again, it's just his heart attitude behind it. But what you'll see is there are certain places where when Zophar speaks, it actually echoes some things that God says. And Zophar will try to get Job's attention. Uh, Job 11, verses 2 and 3, Zophar says, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Any of you know people who just talk all the time just because they have a lot of words doesn't make them right? No, many times it makes them crazy because 
I'm one of those people. Uh, Verse 3, he says, should your babble silence men, and when you mock, should no one shame you? This is probably a way to get Job's attention. You are talking so much, Job, and you need to stop talking so much. And this is really good for us as well. If we talk too much, we usually need people to step into our lives and say, stop talking so much. Because again, I, I'm, I'm a talker. And when Zophar does all this, what he's trying to do is call Job's attention to who God himself is. Get your eyes so much off of many of your problems, get your eyes upon who God is. And again, when you see those words, God will almost say those same words when God shows up. Because, you know, Zophar will say, who are you to question God? Or what can you know? What do you know that God knows? And when God shows up in uh, chapter 38, verse 4, he will say to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And this is Who are you, Job? How do you know the things that I know? You don't. You don't. Again, Zophar echoing God's words does not mean that God and Zophar have the same intentions in their heart, only that there's a foreshadowing of what is coming up in the text, and it's not an accident. And again, part of this is to show that in the midst of pain, there may be bad voices. There may be messy things that get said to us in the midst of this. But the messiness of friendships are also to remind us that God has given us a community, that to step around us and bring hope. Because how often have we cried out to God and say, God, where are you? Only to see weeks or months or even years later, look back and say, oh my goodness, God was walking with me through all of those things. And many times it was in the messiness of our own friendships. What you'll see by the end of the book of Job is that God did hear Job. And God is with Job. And God answers Job. And I think God did that in a myriad of ways. And you'll see that first, I think, even in his wife, who says those horrible words, curse God and die. But she didn't leave him. She stayed with him. His friends have all this bad theology. They still show up with him and they mourn and weep with him. Their words may have not been the greatest, but they were actually there for him. And this is God stepping in through one another, bringing hope and community. And this also then leads to a good question for all of us when we get centered on our trials and not on God. And that is, why is it so hard for Job to hear God's voice? Which is also a question for us. Why is it that so many of us have so many problems hearing the voice of God? And I think the answer is what Zophar actually points out in the text. That Job has a hard time hearing God because he's too busy listening to himself. And sometimes we have a hard time hearing God because we are so busy listening to, him, listening to ourselves. See, God doesn't care that Job or us might get a little offensive when we cry out in our pain to him. God can handle it. He's a big boy. But the more Job cried out in his life, what you see is the more self-centered Job became. That crying out for him didn't turn him to God. It started to turn him away from God. Now, I get it. Job's circumstances, they were catastrophic. He suffers incredible loss. And I don't want it to diminish that in any way. And yes, grief and mourning are good. They are meant to be these outward expression of love and loss. But sometimes what happens when we're not actually going to God is we start to turn all that grief inward. And it turns into self-pity and self-loathing. And it starts to become depression. And that kind of grief consumes a person. And it starts to leave us hollow and empty to where we no longer hear God because we're only listening to what we're telling ourselves. Sometimes when we get so far down that road, we don't even want to hear God. And so we just block him out completely. And this is why Zophar's words to Job can also be words of hope. Because Zophar is saying, Job, stop listening to yourself. Listen to God. Again, even though Zophar may not have had the best theology, God can still use those people to bring about his purposes. I'm not saying bad theology is okay. It's not. But God is bigger than our bad theology. 
and God can bring everything together. Now, sometimes what Job's friends say is true. Sometimes difficulties can come because of our lack of performance, for lack of a better word. Like you don't get a raise because you don't work hard, or you get fired because you don't show up to your job, or your marriage falls apart because you think it's all about you, and you're no longer giving to another person. But not all hardships are self-imposed. This is what Job is showing us. Every pain we suffer is not a judgment from God on our sin. Everything we go through, though, in the end, though, can be used by God for good. That's the point. Everything can be used for good. That, and that should have been Job's request before God, I think, personally. Not, God, come here and answer me. But again, Lord, help me to see. Because right now, I'm in the state I don't understand, and I need your grace now more than ever. Now more than ever. There's a father that, that goes to Jesus whose son is sick. And he says, Jesus, can you heal my boy? And Jesus says, do you believe? Not that's a litmus test. He's just trying to think, see where the father is. And this is what the father says in Mark 9, 24. I believe, but help my unbelief. It's like, I want to believe. I, I, I think I believe, but it's weak and it's shaky. Help me in that unbelief. And this is one of the reasons for us after the cross, I think we have so much more to see what God did when you see Jesus' death and resurrection, that God did come and God does love us and God did step into our mess. I think we should get a clearer picture of that than Job ever had because we get to see Jesus. And for you in your life, maybe there's a pain. There is some wound buried deep in your heart. The life of Jesus shows that God uses all suffering for good. You may not see it or understand it right now, but he does. God always uses suffering for good. And I know sometimes we'll look around and not see how that is happening. We have questions, wondering how good can come out of anything, maybe like COVID after over a year, and now there's new variants, and what's going to happen with all of that? Because what we need to understand is even when we suffer and the things we don't understand, that God is bigger than our understanding. And God can bring good out of everything. Uh, John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples. And they walk by this guy who was born blind. And the disciples look over and they start to espouse this theology that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had. In John 9 verse 2, they say, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Because that's just the understanding. That's how a lot of people live. Somebody did something wrong for this thing to happen. Whose fault was it? Jesus says, verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now notice, Jesus not, does not say suffering in and of itself is good. What Jesus does is insist that God can and will bring good out of the most tragic events. That's what he tells us. God will use everything for good. God does not relish in our suffering. God does not sit back and go, oh yeah, this is great. Look how bad they're hurting. But God promises always to use it for good. And I think there's no clearer picture of this than the cross of Christ, a moment when God turns all the world in justice and evil on its head because all of our sin was turned into a moment of grace and forgiveness. See, on the cross, Jesus says these words in John 19, verse 30. He will say, it is finished. That means everything that we had built up in our sin account, all of that is done and paid for. It is finished. All the pain of Job, all the sins of his lips and his heart and his actions, it is finished. All of Job's friends, all of the sins of their lips and their hearts and their actions, it is finished. All of our sins of our lips and our heart and our action, it is finished. All laid upon Jesus. Because of the cross, hope is restored. Jesus is suffering, brought about, hope and redemption for all of us. God always brings good out of suffering. And it's hard, I know, when someone you love is in pain, not to start speaking words like Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar, like, you know, platitudes or judgment or karma theology. But in a real way, what we should be speaking more is that God is encouraging us 
And God is walking with us in these places when we suffer for any reason. I think God moves circumstances and will even allow hard things into our lives because he wants us to see what we're going to do. God knows what we're going to do. He wants us to see what we truly believe because it's about growth. God's like a father. And we're like a, like a bunch of kids on stage doing a play. You ever seen a bunch of kids on stage doing a play? You know, it's, it's never perfect and it's never pretty. Half the kids are staring off to the side. They're picking their nose. They're wiping the boogers on people. It's, it's just not the greatest thing in the world. But what happens after the play is over? The parents stand up and they cheer. Why do they cheer? Not because the play was so great and the kids did so great. They cheer because of the relationship they have with the kids. And I think God is cheering us on and loving us, and moving us forward. And the beautiful thing about us and this, you know, this life that we call the play that we're on is God has not just left us to do it alone. Christ steps into that and onto the stage with us and walks with us through all of these places. This is why when God speaks to Job, what he's going to do is remind Job of who God himself is. And this is why when we read the scriptures and speak of the gospel, it reminds us of who God himself is through all of this. Christ comes and he has walked through the worst of anything that we will ever experience. And this is why we need to understand the grace of God, that every day we need God's grace now more than ever. This is why when difficulties come, the answer is then and now we need God's grace now more than ever. This is why we don't understand the answers to our questions and what's going on. We need then and now to understand that we need God's grace now more than ever. When we are angry and when we are frustrated, what we need to understand is then as well as now, we need God's grace now more than ever. Whatever the the world throws at us from all the horrible things of pain and sadness and disappointment and abuse and heartache and loss and difficulties and even death. We need to understand we need God's grace now more than ever because our Father is walking with us. Our Father is encouraging us. Our Father is calling us back to Himself, and not even us can stop Him from doing so. God calls us back to His kingdom in relationship with Him. Uh, John Piper says if you want to know what the book of Job is all about, read the book of James. In the book of James, chapter 5, verse 11, James says, As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. James, half-brother of Jesus, writer of a book in the New Testament, says the entire 42 chapters in the book of Job displays a God who is sovereignly merciful and compassionate in the lives of his suffering people. And this is where we understand that we need God's grace now more than ever. Guys, I know as we walk through the book of Job, you guys have had a lot of questions about hearing God's voice in that. And I think what Zophar says is something we need to think about. Are we looking at this and understand that sometimes we speak way too much and listen way too little? I mean, God will say this thing that we need to be still and know that he is God. And part of doing that is understanding who he is, which brings us back to an understanding of his grace and his goodness that is spoken of in the gospel itself. This is why at Element, every single day or every single week when we go through a message, we take you to a place of communion because communion is a reminder of what God has done for us. This is why you take a cracker and you break it. It reminds of us Christ's body that was broken for us. You take uh, the grape juice or wine and you either dip it in there or you drink it because it reminds us of Christ's blood that was shed. Jesus says you do this in remembrance of me. Why in remembrance? Because it's so easy to forget who God is as we listen to ourselves and not to him. As we need to be a people who trust who God is and what he has said. The revelation of who he is in the gospel. He has taken away all that separated us from God and us from one another. Christ has stepped into where we are to bring us home. Now, I'm going to invite the band to come up. And as they do, 
I also want to invite you, if you would like, if you need prayer, uh, you can send an email to connectorelement.org or prayer.element.org. And if you want someone to pray for you, maybe you are having really messy friendships right now. And you, and you love the fact that you actually have friends, uh, but you're still in the place of, yeah, but my friends are crazy and they're not really helping me out and how all this looks. Well, we'd love to be able to pray with you because we must understand that God is a good and sovereign God that has placed people in our lives to grow us into who he intends for us to be. And so we can have these messy friendships and allow and miss those friendships if we understand the gospel better to speak of the gospel to one another, to speak to one another in a way that always goes back to what Christ did to rescue us. And again, sometimes that we'll be speaking hard words of, hey, let's uh, be a little more silent for God and listen to the things that he is saying to us. Not in, a, not in this way that is you know, casting judgment. This is why everything's messed up in your life, but really sitting back and saying, who is God? What does he want to speak to us? Let's be those who understand who he is first because that will define the rest of our lives. Uh, We are also a people who want to be generous because our God has been so generous with us. And this is why we talk about giving every week. It's the idea that we become generous because God has first been generous with us in our great salvation. And so we give you the opportunity every week online. You can come by here and do that, but we want to be able to do that. And also in the end, We want to be able to connect you guys in friendships that are messy. And that's one of the reasons in our journey guides, we have a whole lot of questions in there for you to sit down and talk through with one another to maybe go a little bit deeper in your friendships. And maybe you'll get some really messy answers in the midst of it that maybe then you could speak of the gospel to one another of how we need God's grace now more than ever. And many times we need to be still and know that he is God to trust him in the midst of all of that, that we can be true friends who understand who God is, even in the messiness of those relationships. Let's be those who lift up Christ in all things. Let's pray. Uh, Father, today we ask that you would take us and move us to a place where we understand being silent before you is a good thing. Letting our lives mellow and be still before you is a good thing. I ask that then we begin to understand your grace better. That we need it now, today, and every moment more than ever. That we would be those who come to a place where we understand the gospel so much better. Who you are. Like when you reveal yourself to Job and Job finally gets a glimpse of who you are. It completely changes him. And so I ask that we would get a glimpse of who you are through understanding better the cross and the resurrection, the gospel, your great grace given to us, that it would change how we live. It would change how we interact with one another. It would change how we we see the world around us because of what you have done. We ask that these moments through this Lent journey would grow us to be a people who are not just more surrendered to you, but also live more on mission in the world, speaking of who you are, being your ambassadors to those around us, being your hands and feet, and that people would see you by how we live. Teach us to be a people who cry out in our places of unbelief that I still believe, but help me with my unbelief. And we ask this in your son's great name. Amen.